Okay, well, hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the States and Markets podcast. Uh, hope you're doing well wherever you're at and whenever you're listening to this. So this week, we are going to be continuing uh, along our journey and our kind of deep dive into neoliberalism and trying to understand and, and break down it, the many different components that comprise um, this very commonly used but um, imprecisely kind of deployed term, neoliberalism. And last week, we took a look at neoliberalism as its kind of intellectual history and, and some of the forerunners in terms of um, uh, major thinkers, people like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, among, among others, um, and, and where it kind of emerged and the intellectual climate it emerged in and what it was intended to do, right? And, and that we talk about Peck's definition of um, you know, resisting what they saw as um, collectivism, right? And, and notions of collective political um, economic systems and so on. And what we're going to talk about this week is a little bit more of an earthly um, manifestation of this in terms of real world politics and the specific kind of political mechanics, um, both at you know, national at the national level, but also at a, at a global level in terms of global institutions and so forth, um, that seek to understand how neoliberalism that emerged as a somewhat obscure or somewhat kind of heterodox economic uh, set of ideas and, and approaches, how that um, slowly kind of migrated from the periphery to the center of the political economic discourse, both within um, major economies like the United States or Great Britain, but but also within major global institutions to become the dominant political economic mode of, of thinking and organization globally, certainly throughout the 1980s and 90s and um, well into the 2000s, right? And for the podcast today, what I really want to do is just focus on how studying this kind of set of historical transformations is a way to think about a bigger and in some ways, you know, obviously more profound or broader question um, within the social sciences and, and the humanities as well. And that is understanding social change, right? And, and it can seem so simple. Um, you know, societies have sets of ideas and institutions and, and principles that seem to, in, you know, somewhat consistent form persist over long periods of time. And looking back and studying history, we can see that at certain specific moments, um, things change in, in very notable ways, right? And, and we often say like qualitatively change, right? There's a, you know, some sort of set of underlying structure or set of ideas um, shifts in a way that we come out on the other end in a very different place. And in, in some ways, we entered the, you know, the 1970s um, still firmly in the world of embedded liberalism, um, Keynesianism and and so forth, um, social welfare state as a kind of central organizing principle. And when I say that, that doesn't mean there weren't other ideas. Obviously, the neoliberals have been around for decades as well. When I say it was a central organizing principle, that it was kind of the default set of un ideas and understanding about, um, particularly within wealthier, um, highly industrialized societies, these were kind of the default approaches to political economy. And we can see that by the time we get to the other side of the 1970s, things have been dramatically transformed where neo, what we now know as neoliberalism became the kind of default or central organizing principle in several key areas of the world, notably the United States. 
and how throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s, this set of ideas about political economic organization and the kind of policies that go with them slowly became dominant around the world in, in places um, in, in Europe, Asia, Africa, and in various different manifestations, of course. And that leads us with the question, well, why do things change? How do they change? Why do they change when they do? And this is a question that I think neoliberalism, the trans, you know, the transformation from what we've been calling embedded liberalism to neoliberalism uh, is, is, a, is a significant instance of this, but it's an instance that is one of many where we can see a documented change in fundamental principles or, or institutional configurations. And it's there isn't a clear way to fully understand exactly the mechanisms that bring that about in, a sort of, in some sort of kind of scientific, like predictive way, right? We do know things change. We can understand forces that lead to their change. But understanding it from a kind of abstract theoretical perspective where we can understand the specific conditions where these changes will happen, but more importantly, the, the, the instances where they don't, right? Because in some ways, in, when we think about social organization, continuity is more of the norm than change. And so very often things don't change. And so we, we also have to think about why don't things change, but also why do they change? And then why do they change when they do? So included in the notes um, for this week, which I'll send out, one of the uh, headings is this idea of ideas, conditions, and opportunities. And so one way to think about a more general framework is thinking about the intersection of these, right? That um, when conditions begin to change, um, and often, uh, not surprisingly, in ways that people consider to be for the worse, um, you know, be it economic crisis or political crisis or social crisis or some mix of all three, for ideological or intellectual, what, what have you, entrepreneurs, um, those are seen as opportunities, right? Because in crisis, um, what that means is that certain logics that have been used in the past very often are no longer being effective in, in solving the, the issue, and in that case, people who have alternative ideas or, or are some issue with the status quo see an opportunity. And in that opportunity, they see a chance to elevate their ideas. And, and this is often for, for, you know, often we tend to think of the political process and particularly political elites as very sharp and calculating. Um, and, and in some ways, maybe they are um, in the things they do. But in these kinds of moments of crisis, a lot of them, they, they really don't know what to do. They, they don't know how to handle it. And one of the features of a crisis is that it tends to in include things that haven't really been experienced directly before, or haven't been experienced for some time. I mean, we've seen this in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, things now seem a little bit more stabilized and people kind of have a little bit of better idea of what to do or what not to do. Not, we're not fully figured this out, but compared to the first few months, thinking about March and April and May of 2020, people, you know, leaders then didn't know what to do. And they were calling, okay, give me some ideas. And that is where we can see that in those moments, having a set of ideas ready to go to make recommendations to address the matters brought up by the crisis is in some ways a, a valuable resource um, and something that uh, political leaders are going to be encouraged or, or have some incentive to embrace because this is uh, kind of the messy world of how we try to navigate crises or, or disruptions in what we consider to be the normal order. And I think that 
kind of paradigm or that framework, this combination of crises, uh, opportunities, and ideas is a good model for thinking about how we go from a period of 20 or 30 years, which really isn't that long, but a pretty long period where the Bretton Woods and the notions of Keynesianism and so forth uh, hold dominant sway in the international political economic discourse to one where during the 1980s and 90s, neoliberalism would rise to ascendancy and, and come to be the central point of debate. And just like we said with the um, Bretton Woods period, that is not to say there weren't counter ideas or critics of this, and there are quite a few critics of neoliberalism from its very earliest days, uh, but it's more that, again, it became the kind of central anchor and the central point that all debates and discourse centered on. Um, and I think that is a very interesting phenomenon in this case, and one that has obviously a huge amount of global implications and has filtered in various ways into societies all around the world, but again, represents a, a even broader feature of the social world of trying to understand why things change when they do um, and, and what helps us explain why some specific sets of regularized practice become disrupted and ultimately changed and, and what that means. And importantly to consider the fact that even though we talk about these kinds of paradigm changes, that it's never a clean shift, right? And that um, it's not like turning the light on and off, uh, and it's more blurry. And so one thing we can also think about is how do the effects of the Bretton Woods system or Keynesianism or so forth continue to leak into and to weigh into the neoliberal era? Okay, well, that's a lot of food for thought. Um, I look forward to seeing everyone in class next week. Thanks so much for your time and have a great weekend.